Section nine of Kazan by James Oliver Curwood. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leonard Wilson. Chapter nine The Tragedy on Sun Rock. All that day Kazan guarded the top of the Sun Rock. Fate and the fear and brutality of masters had heretofore kept him from fatherhood, and he was puzzled. Something told him now that he belonged to the Sun Rock and not to the cabin. The call that came to him from over the plain was not so strong. At dusk Greg Wolf came out from her retreat and slunk to his side, whimpering, and nipped gently at his shaggy neck. It was the old instinct of his father's that made him respond by caressing Grey Wolf's face with his tongue. Then Grey Wolf's jaws opened, and she laughed in short panting breaths, as if she had been hard run. She was happy, and as they heard a little snuffling sound from between the rocks, Kazan wagged his tail, and Grey Wolf darted back to her young. The babyish cry and its effect upon Grey Wolf taught Kazan his first lesson in fatherhood. Instinct again told him that Grey Wolf could not go down to the hunt with him now, that she must stay at the top of the sun rock. So when the moon rose he went down alone, and toward dawn returned with a big white rabbit between his jaws. It was the wild in him that made him do this, and Grey Wolf ate ravenously. Then he knew that each night hereafter he must hunt for Grey Wolf, and the little whimpering creatures hidden between the two rocks. The next day, and still the next, he did not go to the cabin, though he heard the voices of both the man and the woman calling him. On the fifth he went down, and Joan and the baby were so glad that the woman hugged him, and the baby kicked and laughed and screamed at him, while the man stood by cautiously watching their demonstrations with a gleam of disapprobation in his eyes. "'I'm afraid of him,' he told Joan for the hundredth time. "'That's the wolf-gleam in his eyes.' He's of a treacherous breed. Sometimes I wish we'd never brought him home. If we hadn't, where would the baby have gone? Joan reminded him, a little catch in her voice. I had almost forgotten that, said her husband. Kazan, you old devil, I guess I love you, too. He laid his hand caressingly on Kazan's head. Wonder how he'll take to life down there, he asked. He has always been used to the forests. It'll seem mighty strange. And so have I always been used to the forests, whispered Joan. I guess that's why I love Kazan, next to you and the baby. Kazan, dear old Kazan. This time Kazan felt and scented more of that mysterious change in the cabin. Joan and her husband talked incessantly of their plans when they were together. And when the man was away, Joan talked to the baby and to him and each time that he came down to the cabin during the week that followed, he grew more and more restless, until at last the man noticed the change in him. "'I believe he knows,' he said to Joan one evening. "'I believe he knows we're preparing to leave.' Then he added, "'The river was rising again today. It will be another week before we can start, perhaps longer.' That same night the moon flooded the top of the sun-rock with a golden light, and out into the glow of it came Grey Wolf, with her three little whelps toddling behind her. There was much about these soft little balls that tumbled about him and snuggled in his tawny coat that reminded Kazan of the baby, 
At times they made the same queer, soft little sounds, and they staggered about on their four little legs just as helplessly as baby Joan made her way about on two. He did not fondle them as Grey Wolf did, but the touch of them and their babyish whimperings filled him with a kind of pleasure that he had never experienced before. The moon was straight above them, and the night was almost as bright as day when he went down again to hunt for Grey Wolf. At the foot of the rock a big white rabbit popped up ahead of him, and he gave chase. For half a mile he pursued, until the wolf instinct in him rose over the dog, and he gave up the futile race. A deer he might have overtaken, but small game the wolf must hunt as the fox hunts it, and he began to slip through the thickets slowly and as quietly as a shadow. He was a mile from the sun-rock when two quick leaps put Grey Wolf's supper between his jaws. He trotted back slowly, dropping the big seven-pound snowshoe hare now and then to rest. When he came to the narrow trail that led to the top of the sun-rock, he stopped. In that trail was the warm scent of strange feet. The rabbit fell from his jaws. Every hair in his body was suddenly electrified into life. What he scented was not the scent of a rabbit, a marten, or a porcupine. Fang and claw had climbed the path ahead of him, and then coming faintly to him from the top of the rock, he heard sounds which sent him up with a terrible whining cry. When he reached the summit he saw in the white moonlight a scene that stopped him for a single moment. Close to the edge of the sheer fall to the rocks, fifty feet below, Grey Wolf was engaged in a death struggle with a huge grey lynx. She was down and under, and from her there came a sudden, sharp, terrible cry of pain. Kazan flew across the rock. His attack was the swift, silent assault of the wolf, combined with the greater courage, the fury, and the strategy of the husky. Another husky would have died in that first attack. But the lynx was not a dog or a wolf. It was Mauli the Swift, as the Sarces had named it, the quickest creature in the wilderness. Kazan's inch-long fang should have sunk deep in its jugular, but in a fractional part of a second the lynx had thrown itself back like a huge soft ball, and Kazan's teeth buried themselves in the flesh of its neck instead of the jugular. And Kazan was not now fighting the fangs of a wolf in the pack, or of another husky. He was fighting claws, claws that ripped like twenty razor-edged knives, and which even a jugular hold could not stop. Once he had fought a lynx in a trap, and he had not forgotten the lesson the battle had taught him. He fought to pull the lynx down, instead of forcing it on its back, as he would have done with another dog or a wolf. He knew that when on its back the fierce cat was most dangerous. One rip of its powerful hind feet could disembowel him. Behind him he heard Grey Wolf sobbing and crying, and he knew that she was terribly hurt. He was filled with the rage and strength of two dogs, and his teeth met through the flesh and hide of the cat's throat. But the big lynx escaped death by half an inch. It would take a fresh grip to reach the jugular, and suddenly Kazan made the deadly lunge. There was an instant's freedom for the lynx, and in that moment it flung itself back, and Kazan gripped at its throat, on top. The cat's claws ripped through his flesh, cutting open his side, a little too high to kill. Another stroke and they would have cut to his vitals. But they had struggled close to the edge of the rock wall, and suddenly, without a snarl or a cry, they rolled over, 
it was fifty or sixty feet to the rocks of the ledge below and even as they pitched over and over in the fall kazan's teeth sank deeper they struck with terrific force kazan uppermost the shock sent him half a dozen feet from his enemy he was up like a flash dizzy snarling on the defensive the lynx lay limp and motionless where it had fallen kazan came nearer still prepared and sniffed cautiously something told him that the fight was over he turned and dragged himself slowly along the ledge to the trail and returned to gray wolf gray wolf was no longer in the moonlight close to the two rocks lay the limp and lifeless little bodies of the three pups the lynx had torn them to pieces with a whine of grief kazan approached the two boulders and thrust his head between them gray wolf was there crying to herself in that terrible sobbing way he went in and began to lick her bleeding shoulders and head all the rest of that night she whimpered with pain with dawn she dragged herself out to the lifeless little bodies on the rock and then kazan saw the terrible work of the lynx for gray wolf was blind not for a day or a night but blind for all time a gloom that no sun could break had become her shroud and perhaps again it was that instinct of animal creation which often is more wonderful than man's reason that told kazan what had happened for he knew now that she was helpless more helpless than the little creatures that had gambled in the moonlight a few hours before he remained close beside her all that day vainly that day did joan call for kazan her voice rose to the sun rock and gray wolf's head snuggled closer to kazan and kazan's ears dropped back and he licked her wounds late in the afternoon kazan left gray wolf long enough to run to the bottom of the trail and bring up the snowshoe rabbit gray wolf muzzled the fur and flesh but would not eat still a little later kazan urged her to follow him to the trail he no longer wanted to stay at the top of the sun rock and he no longer wanted gray wolf to stay there step by step he drew her down the winding path away from her dead puppies she would move only when he was very near her so near that she could touch his scarred flank with her nose they came at last to the point in the trail where they had to leap down a distance of three or four feet from the edge of a rock and here kazan saw how utterly helpless gray wolf had become she whined and crouched twenty times before she dared make the spring and then she jumped stiff-legged and fell in a heap at kazan's feet after this kazan did not have to urge her so hard for the fall impinged on her the fact that she was safe only when her muscle touched her bait's flank she followed him obediently when they reached the plain trotting with her fore shoulder to his hip kazan was heading for a thicket in the creek bottom half a mile away and a dozen times in that short distance gray wolf stumbled and fell and each time that she fell kazan learned a little more of the limitations of blindness once he sprang off in pursuit of a rabbit but he had not taken twenty leaps when he stopped and looked back gray wolf had not moved an inch she stood motionless sniffing the air waiting for him for a full minute kazan stood also waiting then he returned to her ever after this he returned to the point where he had left gray wolf knowing that he would find her there all that day they remained in the thicket 
In the afternoon he visited the cabin. Joan and her husband were there, and both saw at once Kazan's torn side and his lacerated head and shoulders. "'Pretty near a finish fight for him,' said the man, after he had examined him. "'It was either a lynx or a bear. Another wolf could not do that.' For half an hour Joan worked over him, talking to him all the time, and fondling him with her soft hands. She bathed his wounds in warm water, and then covered them with a healing salve, and Kazan was filled again with that old restless desire to remain with her always, and never to go back into the forests. For an hour she let him lie on the edge of her dress, with his nose touching her foot, while she worked on baby things. Then she rose to prepare supper, and Kazan got up a little wearily and went to the door. Grey Wolf and the gloom of the night were calling him, and he answered that call with a slouch of his shoulders and a drooping head. Its old thrill was gone. He watched his chance and went out through the door. The moon had risen when he rejoined Grey Wolf. She greeted his return with a low whine of joy and muzzled him with her blind face. In her helplessness she looked happier than Kazan in all his strength. From now on, during the days that followed, it was a last great fight between blind and faithful Grey Wolf and the woman. If Joan had known of what lay in the thicket, if she could once have seen the poor creature to whom Kazan was now all life, the sun, the stars, the moon, and food, she would have helped Grey Wolf. But as it was, she tried to lure Kazan more and more to the cabin, and slowly she won. At last the great day came, eight days after the fight on the Sun Rock. Kazan had taken Grey Wolf to a wooded point on the river two days before, and there he had left her the preceding night when he went to the cabin. This time a stout babiche thong was tied to the collar round his neck, and he was fastened to a staple in the log wall. Joan and her husband were up before it was light next day. The sun was just rising when they all went out, the man carrying the baby, and Joan leading him. Joan turned and locked the cabin door, and Kazan heard a sob in her throat as they followed the man down to the river. The big canoe was packed and waiting. Joan got in first with the baby. Then, still holding the babiche thong, she drew Kazan up close to her, so that he lay with his weight against her. The sun fell warmly on Kazan's back as they shoved off, and he closed his eyes and rested his head on Joan's lap. Her hand fell softly on his shoulder. He heard again that sound which the man could not hear, the broken sob in her throat, as the canoe moved slowly down to the wooded point. Joan waved her hand back at the cabin, just disappearing behind the trees. Goodbye, she cried sadly. Goodbye. And then she buried her face close down to Kazan and the baby and sobbed. The man stopped paddling. "'You're not sorry, Joan?' he asked. They were drifting past the point now, and the scent of Grey Wolf came to Kazan's nostrils, rousing him and bringing a low whine from his throat. "'You're not sorry we're going?' Joan shook her head. "'No,' she replied. "'Only I've always lived here in the forests, and they're home.' The point with its white finger of sand was behind them now, 
and Kazan was standing rigid facing it. The man called to him, and Joan lifted her head. She too saw the point, and suddenly the babiche leash slipped from her fingers, and a strange light leaped into her blue eyes, as she saw what stood at the end of that white tip of sand. It was Grey Wolf. Her blind eyes were turned toward Kazan. At last Grey Wolf, the faithful, understood. Scent told her what her eyes could not see. Kazan and the man-smell were together, and they were going, going, going. Look, whispered Joan. The man turned. Grey Wolf's forefeet were in the water, and now as the canoe drifted farther and farther away, she settled back on her haunches, raised her head to the sun which she could not see, and gave her last long wailing cry for Kazan. The canoe lurched. A tawny body shot through the air, and Kazan was gone. The man reached forward for his rifle. Joan's hand stopped him. Her face was white. Let him go back to her. Let him go, let him go, she cried. It is his place with her. And Kazan, reaching the shore, shook the water from his shaggy hair and looked for the last time toward the woman. The canoe was drifting slowly around the first bend. A moment more, and it had disappeared. Grey Wolf had won. End of chapter 9 of Kazan by James Oliver Curwood. Recording by Leonard Wilson of Springfield, Ohio.